In the 1970s, directors like Francis Ford Coppola and Martin Scorsese and John Cassavetes began to make movies that were grittier, more realistic than probably ever before. Darker themes, very raw and open wound style of character development. But this was in more of the sort of drama, independent cinema world. In mainstream cinema, though, there was a bigger, wilder, darker thing going on too, even with blockbusters, even with huge profile movies, reflecting a kind of pessimism of the era, an obsession of what if, an obsession of worst case scenario, a golden era, they say, of disaster films, which is a weird phrase. Boats sinking, buses crashing, skyscrapers falling down, things burning up, nuclear warfare. Movies like Airport in 1970 about a suicide bomber hijacking a flight. My personal favorite of the bunch, no shocker, The Poseidon Adventure about a tsunami trapping a ship upside down. That was 1972. The Andromeda Strain, 1971, about scientists trying to save humanity from a deadly alien organism. China Syndrome, this was Jane Fonda, playing a TV reporter who uncovers safety hazards at a nuclear power plant. And then, of course, you have the towering inferno, the sweaty Paul Newman running around and up and down desperately trying to save everybody he can. And I feel like this era is capped off in 1983 with the infamous TV movie The Day After, which chronicles basically the poisoning of everybody after a nuclear bomb is dropped right in the middle of middle America, right in the middle of Kansas. Side note, I had a history teacher show us a VHS copy of the day after in civics class, I believe, in high school in, gosh, that must have been like 99. And I can sleep for weeks. (laughs) So, uh, Anyway, you may be wondering why I bring all of this up. Today, I revive the Titanic on film series here on Unsinkable, and I've just cataloged 1970s disaster films. Trust me, it's for a reason. In terms of Titanic on film, in the 1970s, you know, there hadn't been much as of late. There had been the Unsinkable Molly Brown in 1964 but that's not really a Titanic movie. Prior to that, A Night to Remember had been the last true Titanic film on either side of the Atlantic, and that was 1958. And until Robert Ballard and John Louis Michel found the wreck in 1985, interest in Titanic had waned, really truly had, and was not at the pulse of popular culture or of historical studies, not by a long shot. So the existence of the film I'm going to discuss today was more rooted, much more so, in the legacy of these disaster films of the 70s than it was in the history of Titanic films. Peril at Sea, an ensemble cast packed with character actors beyond, it's pretty clear, their prime of fame, and up-and-coming actors that would perhaps cringe looking back at this particular filmography entry later on. In the case of this movie I'm about to discuss, 
That means a young Helen Mirren in a black and white maid's uniform, and a lanky David Warner as a scarf-wearing, lovelorn Lawrence Beasley in second class. Throw in Madeline Asder depicted with peak 70s bangs. And I mean, guys, this is a time capsule, a 70s gym. Can you hear the wink in my voice? Are you ready to go back to 1979? This is Titanic on film. S-O-S, Titanic. All right, before I get started... I want to just take a minute and thank my newest Patreon members. I want to thank Tiger Cat, great handle, uh, Avi, Rodney, and Ashlyn. As always, it means the world. Thank you guys. And if you are interested in joining Patreon, you can hop over to the page, links in the show notes, and you could look around a little bit um, to some of the you know unlocked posts and get a sense of what is going on over there. Um any other announcements? I don't think so. Let's jump right in. So I want to preface this whole episode <laughs> by letting you know it was inspired by an event. So I went to Titanic Con in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee a few weeks ago. I was coming off of the Ireland and England trip with my family and got right back on a plane six days later not the best decision in terms of fatigue and physical well-being, I will tell you that. Um, but it was really important for me to go. I had never been to a Titanic event like this that was an organized conference, academic in nature in some ways. And I don't want to unpack the whole conference here in this episode, but I will say it was such a <laughs> unique uh, experience. It was so wonderful in some ways. I got to meet a Titanic descendant, Frankie Goldsmith, Frank Goldsmith, who is the son of Frank Goldsmith, who was on one of the collapsibles. And his son is still alive and comes to events and talking with him and hearing him speak really, really ranks as one of one of the kind of coolest, most important moments as a historian in my whole life that I've ever had. That was amazing. But also this conference is sort of stuck in time. And I was there with another podcaster. She and I were talking about this. There was definitely a sense of here are the Titanic stories that are being told and retold within a small circle of people. And that's not necessarily to fault anybody because those people are very passionate about Titanic. And of course, you want to talk to other people that are as well. But it really opened my mind even more so to the importance of what we're doing here, which is having conversations that are modern and informed by 
new historiography, new writings, new novels, <laughs> um, you know, how people are studying and talking about Titanic on social media, how podcasters like myself are using this medium to keep Titanic alive. And it made me realize that there's a lot of work still to do in sort of modernizing the field of the study of Titanic. But that's another day to talk about all of that. And, you know, maybe at some point I'll have someone else on who was at the conference, maybe one of the the presenters. I met some amazing people, uh, some amazing people that have been in the Titanic community for decades. So I would love to have, you know, some of them on to, to talk about this. And in the meantime, I want to share a fun sort of comical part of the conference, which is that... On the second day, we were supposed to see a copy of the film The Six, which I have featured on this pod. Um, It's amazing. Uh, Steven Schwenkert, who is in the film as the lead researcher and also, you know, kind of co-creator of the film, he's been on the podcast. If you're new to the podcast, go back in the feed. There's a great interview with him from very early on in the show. He was very um, kind to come on early when I was not proven in any way in terms of audience or many episodes out. But we were supposed to see a copy of this, um, and it didn't work at the cinema we were at. We were at the Forge Theater, which is kind of like a Cinemark or a Regal, you know, just a run-of-the-mill sort of suburban cinema. The DVD copy that they had wouldn't work. And so instead, the conference pops on SOS Titanic. (laughs) And... There's a long debate about whether to show the full three-hour version or the shortened version of, I believe that one may be 104 minutes. So, you know, settled in. (laughs) And I have to be perfectly honest because I am only perfectly honest on this podcast. I really had to fight to stay awake. And I will say about this movie, it's one that I have been running from for a long time. People ask me about it. Uh, The portrayal of Margaret Brown in it is off the wall. Uh, So people always ask me about it in terms of her. So I've been sort of running from it. I'm not a big 1970s, 1980s film person few here and there that I was raised on. In fact, Towering Inferno and Poseidon Adventure I was raised on. Those are fantastic. I'm just not a big 70s TV or movie person. So I've been running from it. So I'm sitting in this theater and I'm a little bored. There is the David Warner of it all, which is wonderful. And and one of the reasons I wanted to do this episode as well is David Warner, who played Spicer Lovejoy in the 97 film. He obviously recently passed And he is in this movie. He plays Lawrence Beasley, which you probably recognize that name if you're a Titanic person or from other episodes. He was a second-class survivor. He was a writer and a school teacher. So this is in honor of David Warner. And him sitting on the deck in a windblown scarf is the main reason I sort of wanted to stick with this movie and commit to doing an episode 
about it. But back to the perfect honesty, I will let you know that about a third of the way through this film in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, on a lovely sunny day, I was feeling sleepy at 10 o'clock in the morning, and something happened with the DVD. It got interrupted. There was a a, a break. <laughs> and so me and another Titanic podcaster who will remain nameless, you know who you are, we went to lunch instead. And I ended up with a Bloody Mary the size of my head. So that was my first time trying to watch this movie. It just didn't feel right. But I came home and I got a DVD copy and I revisited it and I sat with it and I put it into some more context. And while it certainly will never be in my top five Titanic uh, film or TV adaptations ever, maybe not even my top 10, I I did discover that there's a great balance of laughable moments uh, with, you know, some historically accurate slash kind of what I call window moments where the film opens up a conversation about something else that's important. So here we go. I'm just, we're going to talk about SOS Titanic, guys. All right. So first I want to talk about the actors playing some of the real life historical characters and sort of what context they're in in the 70s. So J.J. Astor is a huge figure in this movie, and he was played by an actor named David Jansen, who was known for The Fugitive, which is a cultural phenomenon of a TV show, which ran from 1963 to 1967. And he was known for playing Audie Murphy, the decorated World War II soldier. He also starred with John Wayne in The Green Berets and The Shoes of the Fisherman, which I'm told by my dad are significant films of his as well. Interesting story. My dad and my grandparents were in Las Vegas in 1968 and met Jansen and said he was lovely. So there you go. By the late 70s, Jansen was not you know, at the peak of his career by any means. He also was not, by the look of it, in the best of health. And though he's only 48 in this movie, which was John Jacob Astor's actual age at the time of his death on Titanic, Jansen looked so much older with this full white beard and kind of a stoop to his walk that you kind of want to reach out and try to give him a hug through the screen. Uh, he sadly passed away just a few months after the release of this movie, which was a TV movie originally. Those lines have been blurred because of DVD copies um, and a theatrical release in Europe, but we'll talk about that. As his wife, Madeline, who was 19 at the time in real life, uh, she is played by an actress named Beverly Ross, who's definitely a lot older than 19. Uh, and I don't think she was known for much. I couldn't find much of a filmography on her. But she steps into Madeline's role with the most anachronistic haircut I've ever seen in a period movie, ever. It's peak 70s bangs, fringe at the ears. Her clothes have this somehow this vague 70s feel to them too, and the rest of the costumes don't. So she looks like she's in another movie. And she is, the portrayal of Madeline is that she is, you know, so grateful to be among 
these wealthy people. She's so grateful to be the new wife of JJ. She's so concerned about who will accept her and who won't. She's almost like a little puppy following JJ around. And I have not read enough about Madeline and JJ to know what we know about their interpersonal, uh, you know, interactions, but it didn't seem right. It's about a little creepy. There was a little bit of a father-daughter sort of vibe going on with how JJ was portrayed as communicating with her too. I didn't love it. I have to be honest, a little creepy. Uh, As Margaret Brown, though I hesitate to even call this a depiction of Brown because it's beyond absurd, we have Cloris Leachman, who of course had an eight-decade career on television and in film, won something like eight Emmys, I think, and uh, an Oscar as well. Oh, yeah, just this little thing called an Oscar. I knew her from watching reruns of the Mary Tyler Moore show on Nick at Night growing up, and I just absolutely adore her, but not in this role. She's running around with this Wild Western accent and these flamboyant clothes. She's in the dining saloon dancing and putting on a show. There's nothing wrong with that. More power to a woman, like dancing and enjoying herself. But the portrayal of Margaret Brown in the scenario and in the movie, she's Maggie, but deciding to go by Molly for a stage career, which is completely inaccurate. There was a hint of a stage career later on, but that wouldn't have been going on at the time of Titanic. And she was definitely never known as Molly on Titanic, as far as I've ever been able to tell. So this portrayal of of Margaret Brown is like the 97 portrayal of Margaret Brown by Kathy Bates looks perfect compared to this one. And we know the 97 one is definitely not perfect, but it looks perfect compared to this one. So um, a couple of the other real characters featured um, are Mary and Daniel Marvin. They were young honeymooners on Titanic. They are, they were real people. I had sort of a, you know, who is that moment with the actor that played Daniel Marvin. His name is Jerry Hauser and his face is a very, got a very character actor kind of face. And I kept thinking, I know him from somewhere and I couldn't for the life of me figure it out. I hate to Google in those moments. I want to figure it out myself. So I waited for a while and then finally I did. But he played Marsha's husband on the Brady Bunch reboots of the 1980s called The Brady Brides, where they did these TV movies and a TV show, I think, that totally flopped called The Brady Brides, where Jan and Marsha lived in a house with their new husbands. And I grew up, again, watching all the reruns of of things on Nick at Night, and so The Brady Bunch would play, and I guess these, these episodes from the 80s, they would turn into regular episodes that they would play at the end of the uh, original seasons. So... That was him. He was Marsha's husband. So anyway, he plays Daniel Marvin. And I didn't really know much about their story. So this was new to me. So Mary Marvin was born in 1894. She was only 18 when she boarded Titanic. She was born Mary Graham Carmichael Fargaharzen. <sighs> what a name. From Scotland. Uh, she was born in Scotland, but her family moved to Manhattan. She married at the age of 18 in January of 1912 to Daniel Marvin, also 18, and the son of a motion picture house founder. And in the film, an SOS Titanic, I keep calling it a film. It's a TV movie, y'all. It's definitely a TV movie quality. Uh, In the movie, Daniel is shown cranking a film camera that he's brought on board and he's taking footage. 
And that made me realize that maybe in the deleted scenes of the 97 movie, when there's that shot of Jack and Rose walking on the deck more, and she's sort of contemplating and talking about what career she wants for herself, and she says she might be an actress, and she sort of flings herself down the deck, and there happens to be a man shooting with a video camera or motion picture camera. I don't know what you call it at the time. I have not done that research. Maybe that was supposed to be Marvin. Maybe that was Cameron's sort of nod to the Marvins. Possible. But um, Daniel's father, Henry, was the founder of an early motion picture production house, American Autoscope, and the Biograph Company. D.W. Griffith actually made his first films with Marvin There was a reenactment of Mary and Daniel's wedding in March, so two months after they were married in January, and this was considered the first cinematograph, cinematographed, that was the word I found, um, wedding. So the first filmed staged wedding, I think, of a regular couple. Um, They had left earlier that spring on the Mauritania for their honeymoon, and they were returning on Titanic. Daniel was said to have accompanied Mary to the boats and said, it's all right, little girl, you go, I will stay. Daniel was lost in the sinking. Mary gave birth to their daughter, Mary Margaret, on October 21st, 1912. Mary remarried quickly. I think it was about a year or so. Honeymooned again abroad, was not afraid of getting back on the transatlantic liners, uh, and apparently never spoke about Titanic. So they are... Very interesting first-class couple that I didn't know anything about. So that was uh, fun to uncover. Um, There is an actor named John Moffat as Benjamin Guggenheim. He was an English character actor. He portrayed Hercule Poirot on BBC Radio. Then there is David Warner as a second-class passenger, Lawrence Beasley. R.I.P. David Warner. Uh, he was so he he will always live in my heart as Spicer Lovejoy, but he was so much more than Spicer Lovejoy. He attended the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. He was in the Royal Shakespeare Company in the 1960s. He played Hamlet at one point. He was it was said that his sort of lanky, haggard appearance led him to get a lot of villain roles, a lot of character roles, a lot of sci-fi roles. I don't get this. I think he's really handsome, so I don't get the haggard thing, but, you know, shrug. Um, he was in, you know, a lot of high-profile projects, The Omen. He was Bob Cratchit in A Christmas Carol. He was in Tron. He voiced Ra's al Ghul in the Batman animated series. He was in Star Trek. And I did see recently where at the time of his death, it was reported that he had actually been a huge trans ally and had donated to a lot of transgender causes uh, later in life. So that's awesome. Uh, RIP, David Warner, rest well, dear sir. And I want to remind people of the Lawrence Beasley story a little bit. He is the one who, and this is this is some of the mythology. I don't know that this will ever be 100% confirmed, but Titanic historians tend to accept it as fact. He is the one that uh, is supposed to have gone on set of A Night to Remember and tried to sort of go down with the ship uh, in a way that he hadn't in 1912. Obviously, he was a male that survived in a lifeboat, and there was probably a fair amount of guilt that went along with that. And so some believe that he was kind of trying to correct that by staying on the ship till the end on the set of the movie in the 1950s. 
He was a teacher. He was a journalist. He was an author. He wrote about his experiences from the night of the sinking in The Loss of the SS Titanic, published in June of 1912, so pretty shortly after the sinking. He was a schoolmaster and eventually became a principal. He lived to be 89 years old. So, and, and, you know, a lot of his recollection, recollections of the sinking are some of the main sources that we have. So that's Lawrence Beasley. And in the movie, he is having a sort of flirtation, uh, developing love story with a woman named Lee Goodwin, who is played by an actress named Susan, Susan St. James. And that character is fictional. So Lee Goodwin was not a real person. St. James was a model who grew up in Illinois. She was known for TV in the 70s and 80s. There was a crime series, Macmillan and Wife, that she was on with Rock Hudson as his much younger wife. So um, she was, you know, these TV movies at the time would be populated with you know, either kind of up and coming actors and actresses that are, were coming out of maybe British theater or New York theater and really ready to take any role that they could get to sort of establish themselves. Uh, also with, you know, character actors or TV actors that maybe had had a big series. So they had a fair amount of following, a fair amount of fans. They weren't really in their heyday anymore. So there's quite a few of that, uh, quite a bit of that going on in this movie that has been mostly first and second class or all first and second class in the film there are also eight irish depicted leaving from cove which would have then been queenstown and obviously i was just in cove a few weeks ago so it was really exciting to see this part of the story shown that they're boarding off the irish coast the eight irish characters were all based on real people which is kind of cool katie gilnaw Kate Mullins, Mary Agatha Glenn, Bridget Bradley, Daniel Buckley, who, side note, is one of the only third-class passengers that's interviewed in the Senate hearings in New York after the sinking. You can see his testimony. Find it online. That's really amazing. Uh, Jim Farrell, Martin Gallagher, and David Chartons. So those were the steerage passengers, the third-class passengers that were featured in this movie. Okay. Oh, I haven't mentioned the biggest one. Helen Mirren in in this movie. (laughs) A very young Helen Mirren, very beautiful Helen Mirren. She's still very beautiful. As Mary Sloan, a real stewardess. Violet Jessup is also in the movie, but not as the main stewardess shown, which is interesting. And, you know, this is one of the big critiques of this movie, which is there seems to be this flirtation going on with Helen Mirren's character, Mary Sloan, and Thomas Andrews, who is very much married uh, in was very much married in real life and is very much married in the film, you know, by default as well. So that has been a critique of the movie. And I have to say, there's a couple of scenes where they're making eyes at one another and it does seem like flirtation and not quite appropriate, but, you know, I'll let you be the judge. So one of the big themes of SOS Titanic, which is bookended by you know, this Carpathia story. So unlike a lot of the Titanic movies and TV series, Carpathia is not an afterthought here. It's a big part of the story. The film opens with 
the ice flows, the icebergs, um, a pretty good shot of the ice fields given technology in the 1970s. In the opening credits, you see this. And you see the Carpathia being awoken to the news of Titanic sinking. You see an actor portraying Harold Cottam, the wireless operator on Carpathia. You see him waking up, Arthur Rostrin, the captain of the Carpathia. And the first 10 or 15 minutes of this movie are the Carpathia's actions as they are stunned to hear of Titanic's fate and they get to these coordinates that they've been given and they arrive and they see nothing and then they start to see the lifeboats pop up. And and I will say for as much as this movie is slow going, (laughs) very slow going guys, very slow going and it has parts that I believe are just kind of plain boring and uh, not well done. But for as much as I have some problems with this movie, These scenes are great because unlike any other Titanic movie or TV show I've ever seen, it really shows what the what the emotional charge of those moments must have been for the lifeboats to be spotted. Because, you know, this isn't this isn't commonly known, but those lifeboats were all over the place. They weren't all together. A few were strung together, but it had been dark in the middle of the North Atlantic in the middle of the night. And so they had drifted away from one another. They're they're over, you know, they're kind of, you know, floating out there in a big radius. It takes a couple of hours for them all to get to Carpathia, to row to Carpathia. And so that process had to have been you know, for those on board Carpathia and for those in the lifeboats just terrifying. And I don't think it gets talked a lot about and, and it definitely doesn't get portrayed a lot in in these adaptations. So, um, and I don't know, adaptation is not a good word to use. I apologize. Depiction is the better word. I shouldn't say adaptation, but that implies like a book. But this is a very, obviously all very, very real. So um, one of the big themes of the film is class, right? It's very, very clear third-class passengers are... The Irish Story, second class is Lawrence Beasley and this fictional Lee Goodwin having these conversations about class. That would be a critique of mine too. There is literally a scene where they're sitting on deck and the woman that David Warner is sort of falling for, Lee, she's a school teacher as well. She says, well, we're just in the middle. We're the middle class. We're in second class. We're in the middle of everything. It's a little speech she gives. So that's, it's very obvious they're trying to... uh, writers and and director trying to drive home that this Titanic is about class, which it 100% was. So there you go. Um, Third class is held down in this film, The Night of the Sinking, but led by Jim Farrell uh, to sneak up and some of them survive. Thomas Andrews is depicted as very saintly here. Um, This is a depiction of Thomas Andrews in a long line sort of how he's always portrayed. Uh, very, again, very saintly, um, very proud of this thing that he has helped to build and design and then, you know, saddened and maddened and tortured when it it it's headed towards its end. So that's certainly not anything unique to this film, the depiction of Andrews. And, and by all accounts, Andrews was a very generous, wonderful, compassionate human being. So that's not necessarily a bad thing. I I think sounds like he was a really great guy. So there you go. It, Bruce Ismay is here and he boards as a passenger, uh, but then has 
basically a, a nervous breakdown. He is portrayed as arriving on the Carpathia and sort of sitting in stunned silence and saying, you know, that was that was my ship and she's gone. And there's this scene where he's looking over the side of the Carpathia and he sees a little bit of like flotsam in the water. And I guess he thinks it might be a body. And he asks someone who's standing next to him like, oh, what, what is that? We need to stop. We need to stop. And the guy on the Carpathia just says, you know, that's not, that's nothing. It may just be a bit of debris. It's, it's no big deal. And that's what Ismay says. It kind of opens up the the story of the night of the sinking as it flashes back from Car- Carpathia to Titanic, it's Ismay saying like that's all that's left of our you know a few pieces of wood is all that's left from this ship that his company owned. So it's pretty typical Ismay scenes, you know. He's a little bit the scapegoat. He's shown as being a little bit of a coward. Um, it's the typical Ismay portrayal. If you are new, I feel like I'm. I'm referencing my older episodes a lot. If you are new to the pod, though, definitely check out the Bruce Ismay episode that I did. It was, I think, the second episode I ever did, and I'm really proud of it. It was back when I hadn't realized yet that I would not survive putting in (laughs) that much research to every episode. I mean, guys, that Ismay episode and the first couple of ones that I did, I ran myself into the ground. I did a thesis level amount of research for those episodes, which is why some of those early ones are hours long and really, really, really insanely detailed. Some of the ones I'm most proud of, but I quickly realized that if every episode was that intense, I would not be able to keep this up. So now you've probably noticed I do a little bit more of a peppering of different types of episodes. I'll have one of those insanely researched deep dive on a passenger episodes every couple of months, but then also I've got interviews, I've got movie episodes like this. So anyway, but that one's a good one. What else? What else? Um, yeah, definitely shows the Carpathia more fully than any other of the Titanic movies I've seen. What's interesting is that the band is per- is not portrayed as playing near My God to Thee in this film. Um, talk a little bit about the film getting made. It was made by Bernard Delfont at EMI Films. And this was the same time that his brother, Lou Grade, Sir Lou Grade, Lou is L-E-W, was making Raise the Titanic, which is 1981. So two Titanic films made by brothers or greenlit in one case by a brother. Uh, That's interesting to me. (laughs) I mean, there must have been some level of Titanic obsession in that family. That's not a coincidence, right? It's a big deal. Um, Producer William Fillmore called it the quote, thinking man's disaster film. So, you know, like talking about what I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, that is coming in this long tradition of disaster obsessed films of the 70s. And TV movies are kind of a little bit the cheaper, slightly junkier version of those. Uh, you know, a little bit on the history of sort of TV movies. Um, you know, in the 1950s, as early as the 1950s, episodes of 
television shows would be roped together and released as films in other countries. So that was a thing. In the 60s, major networks started their, you know, Sunday night at the movies programming to encourage people to stay home instead of venturing out to the movie theater, making the argument through their promos that it was just as much a major event to see a film at home on television as it was to go to the cinema. And then they started making them because they ran out of movies to show or that they had the rights to. So they started making made-for-TV movies. And this era was born around 1964. And a lot of them became anthologies. A lot of them would be shown over the course of several nights. And that's how this one, SOS Titanic, was done. It was shown over the course of three nights. And there's a huge history of made-for-TV movies. And I'm obviously not going to go into all of that here. Um, But what's interesting is that for years, studios had been trying to make more money off of these television movies by giving them theatrical runs in Europe. And uh, that's what happened to this film as well. There's actually a shortened version because it was released theatrically in Europe, but not in the U.S. So some of the scenes were filmed on the Queen Mary, some of the exterior decks and the wheelhouse. The Queen Mary continues to be a stand-in for Titanic. Uh, it's anchored in Long Beach, California. I believe I've heard that it is on the verge of reopening to tourists or maybe just reopened. We were there this past spring in March and it was closed and I had to sort of sneak on site for some exterior photos with my son, who's a big rule follower. He's seven, so he basically was like my police. He's like, Mommy, we can't be here. So I didn't get very good shots. Um, But yeah, so it was um, partially filmed on the Queen Mary. Queen Mary stood in for Titanic as recently as the 2B movie from this past year called Titanic 666. So it just continues to uh, fill that sort of role. There were some interior scenes at the Waldorf and Adelphi Historic Hotels in London and Liverpool. And that makes perfect sense because in the scenes of the quote unquote grand staircase, it's definitely not Titanic's grand staircase. It is definitely a hotel staircase. So uh, it's pretty obvious. The town of Peel on the Isle of Man stood in as Queenstown slash Cove. The TSS Manxman, Manxman, M-A-N-X-M-A-N, appears as the Carpathia. It was a passenger ferry that was built in 1955. It had routes from Northwest England and North Wales to Isle of Man and Ireland. So this was originally broadcast as a TV movie on ABC on September 23rd, 1979. And it was three hours long, 144 minutes. And I will tell you, come at me about this if you don't agree. Um, I will tell you, the Titanic 97 is three hours and is it three hours and 15 minutes. I should know that. Um, and it doesn't feel like it. This feels like three hours. It feels like it needs to be spread out over several days, which is why maybe I naturally did that accidentally. But it feels this long, guys. I I mean, if you disagree, let me know. It would occasionally show on TV over the years, uh, or there would be like bootleg copies. There was a shortened version of 98 Minutes that was part of a home video VHS release. And uh, in 1980, there was a theatrical run, like I said, in Europe, and that one was 103 minutes. So there's various cuts of this movie which explains why on the morning of this conference I was at a few weeks ago, there was this huge debate among Titanic people there about which version to 
show. And it's not streaming anywhere right now, sadly. So you have to order a DVD copy. I just did a giveaway actually of a copy on my Instagram. It's it's cheap though. It's like 10 bucks. And it does come with audio commentary. It has both versions of the film. So if you're a Titanic collector, if you're a Titanic person who wants to watch and own all of the different depictions on film, it's you know, pretty easily um, acquired at this point, but sadly not streaming. So I do want to share, <laughs> I do want to share a quote I found from the Daily News, New York in September of 1979, that this was from a review of the film, the movie, accusing film, it's a movie. Uh, and it really falls in line with how I feel about it. So quote, Unfortunately, the three hours are padded with superficial romances and characters that never take shape because the script keeps zigzagging from reality to fiction and the and the details of the tragedy are omitted. And this is exactly how I felt about the film. It, it did a great job of, in, of incorporating historical characters from third class, from first class. You even see some of the uh, historical characters that you don't in other depictions like Olas Abelseth, like Daniel Buckley, like Katie Gilnaw, some of these third-class passengers that we do have quite a few sources on, but no one ever puts them in the movies. So that's great. But the mixture of the historical characters with the fictional just doesn't work in this movie. And the de- the really compelling details of the sinking are just not there. I cannot tell you. I'm just a few days out from watching it all the way through. And I honestly can't tell you much about (laughs) specific scenes. I don't remember a lot. A lot of it is just, I I don't know, it feels like window dressing. And I'm sad as I, you know, wanted more from it. Um, In that same review um, on Leachman, Cloris Leachman as Margaret Pound, quote, a disastrously outlandish characterization she needs a tight rein, or was she just miscast? Now, that quote makes me angry because it should never be implied that a woman failed at a depiction of a character because she was not on a proper leash. Uh, I think Cloris Leachman knew exactly what she was doing in that character, but it still is a questionable choice. And quote, vignettes of reality would have been far more worth our time than the silly romances. <laughs> and I mean... It's all about whether it's all about how it's done, right? Because obviously, romance would go on to play an elemental part in the most successful and and arguably one of the very best, I think, the best depictions of of Titanic ever. Uh, just about twenty years later, so it's all about craft and direction. This movie was. See, I didn't even think to tell you who this movie was directed by. Sincere lack of direction going on in my. Okay, the script was written by James Costigan, and it was directed by William Hale, but he's credited here as Billy Hale. He also directed The Virginian, Journey to Shiloh, and The Murder of Mary Fagan and the Streets of San Francisco. I have not seen any of those, so... There you go. Yeah, I, you know, I think the review was sort of spot on in 1979 about what's going on in this movie. The reviews of the time sort of ask why instead of all of the kind of zoning in on the romantic attachments of various characters, why there wasn't more time spent on just how and why the ship sank. And I 
100% agree. There is this moment where Lawrence Beasley and Lee Goodwin, so David Warner and Susan St. James, like consider going to have like a romantic uh, interaction, let's say, in one of the empty rooms on board and they decide not to. And I'm thinking, you should have just gone for it. That would have made this movie a whole lot more interesting. So, you know, there you go. But I, you know, I think as Titanic movies go, it definitely ranks pretty high on overall historical accuracy in terms of just the feel of the sinking and the feel of the emotional weight of what happened. But it does just get bogged down in a lot of these relationships that you don't necessarily care that much about because there's not time to develop each one of those characters accurately. That's just my two cents. But I would love to hear what you have to say. I think this is one of the films where there was less historical context in, in terms of writers, directors. It's kind of origin story. There really wasn't a ton to uncover, but it was fun to talk about. And I do think some of the characters that it highlights, you know, remind us how many individual stories were on that ship, how many individuals with very detailed, complex lives um, there are to explore. So that's SOS Titanic. I ran from it from a long time for a long time. And thanks to a random morning in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, I decided to finally not run from it. Uh, if you have any suggestions about films or TV series or parodies or anything, documentaries that I should cover. I am going to be reviving this Titanic on film series from time to time. It's fun to jump into one of these with a little bit more of a conversational tone as kind of side episodes. I definitely am open to having people on to talk about them with me. But yeah, let me know if you have a suggestion for one of these. You can always email me at unsinkablepod at gmail.com. You can always find me on socials on Twitter and on Instagram at unsinkablepod. Um, lots coming at you. A regular episode coming out next week with Simon Medhurst, who is a Titanic descendant. He is the great-grandson of the quartermaster, Robert Hitchens. We had a great conversation. And what else? What else? What else? I am working on a big uh, side series episode on another shipwreck. I am working on a huge episode on the Endurance, which was Ernest Shackleton's ship. And what's really cool about that is that the ship itself was just found after over a hundred years. So there's a lot of similarities and similar conversations and themes to be had about um, recovering a shipwreck, um, you know, ties in with, with conversations related to Titanic. So I'm excited about that one. And I have to recommend a podcast that I came across called the Explorers Podcast, which has an amazing series on Shackleton and his expedition to Antarctica, and also just has a lot of wonderful episodes about explorers from all over the world. The episodes are are scripted and heavily researched, wonderfully put together. So I cannot recommend that podcast enough. I was really happy to stumble upon it. So I'm working on that, and um, also working on. I mentioned you know my Bruce Ismay episode a little while. 
while ago. I am working on one of those types of heavily researched, lots of work put into them episodes on Charles Jockin, who was the baker that rode the stern down. And, you know, even in the 97 movie, he's in his baker whites there on the end. Uh, he keeps coming up. I, over the past six months to a year, I can't tell you how many times a week someone either asks me about him or there's a cultural reference to him or, uh, you know, I'm reading about another topic, another episode, and he enters the picture just because I think people are kind of obsessed with his story. We know a lot about him, but there's also a lot we don't know. And uh, anyway, conversations I have with Titanic people, he just keeps coming up. So I can't run from him any longer. He's going to be in really... Uh, a really interesting deep dive episode. I need to come up with a better term than deep dive. And then also soon I will be doing um, an episode about Titanic Quarter in Belfast, which is also a place I traveled to in August. And that will be another sort of travel themed episode. Yeah, there's a lot coming and be in touch. You know, Let me know what kind of episodes you like, which ones you don't. And feedback is 100% always, always, always welcome. All right. Uh, please subscribe to the pod. Make sure if you listen on Spotify or Apple, wherever you listen, hit the subscribe button and keep sharing Unsinkable with friends and family. I have listeners from all over the world now and the listenership is really growing and I'm really happy and excited and grateful and I hope it continues to grow. And thank you so much for your support. I will see you very soon. Stay unsinkable, you guys. Bye.